0: why is the Oort cloud a sphere? Will Betelgeuse turn into a black hole? And how are scientists so sure about dark matter? All this and more in this week's question show. It's time for the question show your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are across my channel, if a question pops into your brain, just write it down, I will gather them up. And I will answer them here. But in addition to you putting your questions into any of the YouTube comment places that you find just tuck them in there. Uh, You can also join the live show. And we record this show every Monday at 5pm Pacific Time, right here on YouTube. So go ahead. Give yourself some kind of reminder for the next 5 p.m. that will occur in your dimension and come and join us for the live show. It's a lot of fun. All right, let's get into the questions. Paul Davis, 1943. Why is the Oort cloud a sphere when everything else in the solar system is a disk? Yeah, so when you look at the solar system, the sun and all of the planets are roughly lined up. And in fact, all of the moons are roughly lined up around all of the planets. The whole thing is in this flattened disk. And this is a clue to the formation of the solar system that it formed out of this large blob of gas and dust. And as it sort of brought itself down in gravitationally, it started to rotate and spin. And as it spun faster, it flattened out like pizza dough, like a skater pulling in their arms, you know, you've heard all of the analogies, I'm sure. And then you got all of the planets forming in that disk, and then they in their little flattened blobs created their moons. And so you've got this sort of everything is is aligned in this disk. And you're absolutely right that the Oort cloud, which is of course, this cloud of comets that surrounds the solar system, is more in a spherical form. And so, you know, we can't observe the Oort cloud directly, we can only observe it indirectly, what we see are these comets that are falling down into the inner solar system, many of which are doing this for the first time in their entire history, 4.5 billion years since the solar system formed, and they make this one trip past the sun, and then they fly back out, it can take them hundreds of 1000s of years to make this journey from the Oort cloud down. And the Oort cloud extends out really far, like, 50,000 astronomical units far, like maybe halfway to Proxima Centauri, so like a couple of light years away, there are theoretically Oort cloud objects out there. And that there is probably a similar Oort cloud around. Proxima Centauri and one around the twin stars of Alpha Centauri, and then all other star systems out there. And a couple of the clues that we get that these other Oort clouds exist is that we have seen interstellar objects passing through the solar system. So you've got Oumuamua, you've got Comet Borisov, both of these were on interstellar trajectories, they came from another star system. And therein lies the clue for why the Oort cloud is spherical compared to a flattened disk. So the thought is that when the Oort cloud formed, you've got this material that was ejected out of the inner solar system, through interactions, like you've got these large moons around Jupiter, Europa, Ganymede, right? These giant moons made of ice, they are kind of like comets. But with all the gravitational interactions, you got these objects being ejected out into the outer stretches of the solar system. And a lot of them would have then just come back down inside and crash back into the sun or one of these other planets. But some of them were able to kind of get so far out and interact with other objects gravitationally and interact with the other stars that are nearby, that they just kind of are hovering around that everything is kind of balanced out. And now they're just this sphere that is slowly spreading out around and sun like what can happen in four and a half billion years. And so the main reason why you get this spherical shape is that You've got these interactions between these stars as they are coming close to each other, relatively close to each other, in some cases passing through each other's Oort clouds. And the Oort cloud that remains is the just the remnants of all of these interactions over the course of four and a half billion years of all these stars that came really close to each other. And it's estimated that there were like hundred times the mass of the Earth that was ejected out into space during the solar systems formation. And we see that in the form of interstellar objects that are passing into our solar system. The big thought is at the beginning when the sun and the planets formed, it formed in a stellar nebula, there were hundreds, maybe a 1000 sibling stars in our region, and they were packed together pretty closely together. And so you got all of these stars forming all of their planets, all of their icy objects, the icy objects were flying out, the stars were buzzing around each other gravitationally interacting. And you got this sphere of icy objects surrounding the solar system that then has remained for four and a half billion years since the solar system formed. I'm sure you've noticed the Star Wars planet that appeared above my name. What was it like Tatooine, I think. So there will be another Star Wars planet that will appear above my shoulder through each one of the questions that we do during the show. And this is a way for you to vote to tell us which of the questions you thought was the best, which answer you thought was the best, which combination, you know, whatever entertained you let us know in the comments down below, just put in the name of the planet and then go ahead and put in your question or just the name of the planet. And we will tabulate all those votes up and we will celebrate the winner next week. And the winner last week was Tom's cubes and games talking about this rise of artificial intelligence, uh, spam, science videos on YouTube and talking about the video that Kyle Hill made about it. And that was the last question of the show. And yet that was the one that was most voted. So it is a big problem. Um, Go watch Kyle Hills video about it and take the actions that he recommends and YouTube I hope you're watching and come up with a solution for this, because I think this is existential for you. Alright, let's continue on the questions. Stars string stream. Could field stars be similar to population three stars in that they have no metals? So I'll have to sort of decode this a little bit. So field stars are these stars that are not associated with any galaxy. They are the stars in between galaxies. And there's two sources of field stars, it's believed. One is that they are ejected. In kind of in the same way that that icy objects were ejected from the solar system early on in its formation, stars can be ejected by these galaxies early on in their formation in their interactions between each other, stars can be torn away, they can be ejected through interactions with the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, or they can be thrown out because of a supernova. But they can also just be like part of a tidal tail that's that's strewn out and snapped away off into space. And so they were once part of a galaxy. And now they have been given the boot. Now they're flying on their own. But the other theory is that they formed in place that yeah, the biggest blobs of gas and dust came together to form galaxies. But you're always going to have the occasional piece of gas and dust sort of imagine a bell curve. And so most of it is concentrated at the heart of the bell curve. But you're still gonna have outliers, smaller pieces that just never found their way into a galaxy. And so you could end up with a tarantula nebula out there in space, that never joined a larger galaxy. And so it's all on its own. And there's some really interesting evidence for this, but astronomers are still kind of on the fence, whether or not some of these stars could form sort of in situ out there in space, there's a type of star called an O star, it's a very hot star and astronomers have done observations where they've detected these O stars pretty far away from any nearby galaxy. And the reason is because they're visible, like they're one of the hotter, brighter stars. And so you can see them. But the assumption is statistically for every O star that you see, because these things die very quickly as a supernova, there are going to be a lot more of the G stars like the sun M dwarfs around them, and there could be a lot of them out there. But the question you're asking is like, would they be like the population three stars And the population three stars, of course, are the first stars in the universe, the ones that formed out of the primordial hydrogen and helium left over from the Big Bang. And we've never seen those stars directly, but we have inferred that they exist because we know the Big Bang started with hydrogen and helium. We see lots of clouds and gas left over from the Big Bang. And then we see that the current generation of stars contain the ashes the bones of previous stars. And so the assumption is this had happened. And so we don't know. I mean, this is a good question. We don't know if there's a lot of star formation out there. And if there is, we don't know the ages of the stars. So there could very well be these clouds of primordial hydrogen and helium that formed a bunch of stars, some of which were red dwarf stars that have been around for the entire age of the universe, and all of the brighter stars died a long time ago, and but they're just too far away for us to see and anything gets you close to a galaxy where you can actually see it has now mixed up and, and become polluted with other stars. And so we just don't know. I've chose this question as well, because I kind of want to talk about population three stars a bit. And that's because there's just so many papers that are coming out now about population three stars, thanks to JWST. Like, there's too many to count. And I'm really excited. It feels like it's one of those observations that we we knew was right at the very limits of what JWST can do. And now we're seeing a lot of that results. We're seeing the after effects of these population three stars, we're seeing the kinds of radiation that those population three stars would give off after they've gone supernova. And so it feels like of all of the mysteries in astronomy, this one is within our grasp now. And so stay tuned, it's going to be unfolding really quickly, I think, at this point. like I think we had three or four stories last week about JWST observations of population three stars, And I, just, and, and I'm, I'm seeing so many papers in archive and other journals and stuff. So it's a it's a pretty great time for this field. Martin Charles 1121 will Betelgeuse turn into a black hole? We don't know. man. Is, is that what this episode is? We don't know. Um, we don't know. Uh, so the problem is the Betelgeuse is right at the line for the mass of stars that will form either a neutron star or a black hole. You need a star that is about 10 to 25 times the mass of the sun to turn into a neutron star. So it depends on how much of the mass of Betelgeuse is lost. Like it's between 12 and 20, but it could be a little more massive than that. So it could very well, and it sort of depends on how much of the mass of the star is thrown out through its stellar winds. Like if Betelgeuse was above 25 times the mass of the sun, that it would absolutely be turning into a black hole. But because it's less, now it just matters is how much of its mass is it's going to be sloughing off as it's going through this red giant phase, and it's already thrown a ton of material out into space around it in this expanding nebula of material. And it all depends on how much mass it sheds off into space before it finally runs out of fuel in its core, collapses down, forms either a neutron star or a black hole, and then detonates as a supernova. And so I guess better measurements of its current mass and knowing where it is in its life cycle would tell us whether or not it's going to turn into a neutron star or black hole. But for now, it's too close to call. Former Rosa studio. If a bunch of mass in one place creates a black hole, how did the Big Bang happen? Would it not be able to escape? So this is the classic question. Um, Why didn't the Big Bang just collapse back down into a black hole? There's a really weird coincidence that if you take all of the mass in the entire observable universe, all the stars, the galaxy, all of the light, all of the dark matter, and you add up all of that mass, you get a black hole with an event horizon that is roughly the size of the universe. And so are we living in a black hole? Um, and so we you know, I get this question all the time. And so back to last week's question show, which I'm course, you know, I'm sure you watched uh, the universe is maybe infinite was maybe infinite before the Big Bang and is still maybe infinite to this day. And so in order to get a black hole, you need to have a local density that is high enough for it to form a black hole. You could have an average density be much higher than what it would take to form a black hole, but it's not going to form a black hole because you don't have this over density and under density where the material can collapse. So if if you've got this side over here, and this side over here, and they're pulling in opposite directions, and this side over here, and this side, they're pulling in opposite directions, it can never find a place to collapse into a black hole if it's perfectly smooth. And so if the universe was uniform enough, and sort of went on forever, then there was no place where the black hole could form now there are some theories that there were minor overdensities and underdensities in various places and so we might have gotten some primordial black holes black holes that formed shortly after the big bang but there wasn't enough of an overdensity or underdensity but you're absolutely right like if if the entire observable universe is all there was then that would have formed into a black hole you would have it would have appeared and it would have just gone into a black hole But it's not all there was, there was more all around balancing everything out. And so there was no one place where I think turned into a black hole. Emil Goyal, how are scientists so sure about dark matter? Could it be some other mass that acts this way? So I want to direct you to one of the best astronomy related channels on YouTube, which is a Collier Astro. And she is an astronomer. And really knows her stuff and is also really good at presenting a lot of these ideas. And she did a great video sort of goes into depth about this idea of dark matter, that dark matter is not a theory. Dark matter is an observation. It's the most coherent, tightest, well said thing on dark matter that I've ever heard. And so uh, I'm going to steal it. Um, But I'm going to give her attribution every single time that I can. Uh, So I'll put a link to the show notes. And I'll put a link here so you can watch her video. And you know, where she lays out all of the like the real pillars of observation for dark matter. But the gist of this is, is that so when I say that dark matter is an observation, all it is, and uh, you know, I can give you a 1000 observations of uh, examples of what an observation is, you notice there's nothing in your fridge, that is an observation you're like, you open up your fridge, there's nothing in my fridge, you've made an observation, you notice that a car drove by is red, you notice a red car, that is an observation. And the discovery of dark matter is an observation. So astronomers, went to measure the rotation rate of galaxies. And they measured the mass of the galaxies and they found that the rotation rate was too fast. And these galaxies should be tearing themselves apart. That is an observation. They looked into the cosmic microwave background radiation, and it only works if there is dark matter there. It's an observation. They watched the motions of various galaxies at the bullet cluster, and all the gravitational lensing around it and how the stars and the dark matter separated from the gas and dust. And that is an observation. So that's it. Like literally, that's all now it has a name dark matter. Um, but it's, it's just a way to kind of grab all of these observations that are kind of related and put them into a basket together and go, what's this, right? We've made all these observations and there is something here that's more than we understand. So like, it's really important. And so a lot of people say like, Oh, astronomers, they're just making up this thing called dark matter, because they need more money, or they're trying to come up with some form of religion of their own. And so they come up with dark matter or what, like, whatever, right. But no, no, dark matter is an observation. And if you had the ability, and in fact, in her video, she talks about how amateur astronomers with good backyard gear can make some of the observations that show that dark matter is there, you with enough motivation can confirm the observation of dark matter. So like, what is it? We don't know. We don't know, like, just because you get to make an observation, right? So you know, back to my observation of the red car driving by, make an observation, red car drive, driving by, and your friend goes, well, what kind of car was it? And you're like, I don't know. I don't, like, I don't understand cars. What was the name of the driver? I don't know. I, I I didn't see the driver. And even if I did, I don't know his name. Right? Is there a way we could find out what kind of car it was? Okay, maybe like, maybe there's some road cameras that saw the car go by. Is there a way to figure out the dr- drivers? Well, maybe we see the road cameras, maybe someone saw the license plate, maybe we can ask the police, they can tell us who the driver was, like, there are ways you can figure this out. But, uh, but you just made the observation. So astronomers have attempting to constrain how dark matter works, they have been making various observations, more complicated, observations, more sensitive observations, trying to sort of focus on very specific variables. And we know that whatever this thing is, it only interacts with regular matter through gravity, but it doesn't interact with itself. And it doesn't interact through electromagnetic radiation, or if it does, it does it very rarely. There's a lot of it out there, like 10 times as much as there is regular mass. That's it. (laughs) Like, you know, and then various ideas have been proposed, like, well, maybe it's neutrinos. Oh, no, it can't be neutrinos, because neutrinos move too quickly, they're too hot. Could it be that we don't understand gravity at the largest distances? Maybe, right? That's a possibility. So right now we're in the, um, you know, calling to find out if we can get the license plate numbers so we can figure out who the person like, like, it, it is a mystery. And astronomers are trying to solve it. And it seems like an important mystery because, you know, 10 times as much of the universe is this dark matter than the regular stuff that we see and we're made out of. So makes sense that we should try and solve it. But right now where we stand and same thing with dark energy, like dark energy is just an observation. Galaxies are accelerating away from us. That's it. That's the observation. Why? We don't know what's causing it. We don't know what's your dying force. We don't know. Will it cause the universe to tear itself apart? We don't know. Just this is the observation. Weird, huh? That's it. Let's figure it out. And so our curiosity leads us forward. If you like my answers to your questions, as well as the other things that we do at Universe Today, consider joining our Patreon club. This allows us to keep a minimum ads for everybody. And as a patron, you'll get an ad-free experience on university.com for life, even if you unsubscribe. You get ad-free videos, early access to interviews, as well as other perks that are exclusive to our Patreon community. Thanks to everyone who has already subscribed, and welcome to the recent newcomers. Brendan, Samuel Dahl, Nathan Barton, Adam Schaefer, Anders Lund, Brian Crody. Roger Lee, Anders Weylander, Daniel Llewellyn, Ron Gilbert, Bernard, and Amy Zhang. Join the club at patreon.com slash universe today. Guy Bisson, when Betelgeuse star goes supernova, will it generate gravitational waves detectable by LIGO stations? Maybe. God, this is like the maybe show, isn't it? Um. So, okay. Uh, Yeah, so we talked about Betelgeuse. And you know, everyone knows that Betelgeuse could very well be at the very end stages of its life, it could explode in our lifetime, it might not explode for another 100,000 years, but it's going to explode relatively soon, astronomically speaking. And so the question you're asking is that will that generate gravitational waves? So gravitational waves are generated whenever mass moves. And so right now I'm waving my hand. And so I am Dude, I'm generating gravitational waves there. Are, there are ripples of space time. They're emanating out from my hand as I wave to you. But they're not very big. And they are not going to like, be detectable as they pass through you, which they already have. Um, you know, the gravitational waves that I generated by waving at you have already gone through your body, you need really extreme events for them to be detectable by LIGO, you need colliding black holes, colliding neutron stars, maybe a colliding white dwarf and a colliding neutron star. But It is theoretically possible to detect the gravitational waves from a single supernova. But you need the supernova to do something weird, you need it to be asymmetrical. So imagine you've got this supernova and it collapses inward and all of its layers come together. But it doesn't quite collapse at exactly the same rate. So that when the thing when all this material bounces off the core turns into this neutron star black hole, the whole thing jiggles, shakes, wobbles, does something really extreme, some kind of kick and so you get this really extreme shifting of mass very quickly, like it had a like a balloon popping. And you know, the balloon you know, flying off into space. And it has been theorized. In fact, there was a paper that just came out a couple of weeks ago, I think we reported on university if not, like we're about to that LIGO should be able to detect the gravitational waves from some nearby Betelgeuse scale supernova explosions. And so it does seem like a star like Betelgeuse, or maybe some other star that goes supernova within a few 1000 light years of us could be detectable. And it, it and if it did, then it would confirm different kinds of theories like it would give us some theories about the way these supernova go off what the final stage like it would be incredible to get the gravitational wave signal the chirp coming from a star that just went supernova, because it did something so weird. So unusual, that it proved some theories disproved other theories, it would be just an amazing data piece to get. But the other thing that Betelgeuse is going to do when it explodes is it's going to release a burst of neutrinos. And in fact, there is a network right now of neutrino detectors called the supernova detection network, which are scanning sky listening for a burst of neutrinos. Because when a star like Betelgeuse explodes as a supernova, you get all of these layers that are coming down, they're collapsing inward, they're reaching the core, you get this burst of neutrinos comes out. And they're moving it close to the speed of light, the radiation is kind of trapped inside the outer layers of the star and it has to sort of tear its way through the star to get out into space. And that takes it a couple of seconds. And so we would see the gravitational waves come first, then moments later, we would see the neutrinos come at us. And then a few seconds after that, we would see the light of the supernova itself. And so, in theory, the gravitational waves could give us this early warning signal that okay, Betelgeuse went off and confirmed by the neutrinos, and then we turn our telescopes and watch Betelgeuse actually explode. Evo third, when the poles change here, will all compasses be wrong? Yeah, yeah, when the poles flip, then the compasses will be wrong. But in fact, we're in this process of the in wrongening of compasses already, uh, the Earth's North magnetic pole wanders, and has wandered fairly significant. So where the magnetic pole used to point is off by a couple of hundred kilometers from where it is today. But in theory, you know, we've never seen this practically, but when the Earth's magnetic pole actually flips, you're going to get this sort of, you know, if you look at the sun as an analog, where what started as a very sharp pole starts to kind of get these magnetic field lines that start to sort of get all more tangled up and appear at sort of farther locations down, you know, lower latitudes. And then, and then you've got this period where the magnetic field lines are all jumbled across the whole star and then they start to un. Tangle, but now they're flipped vertically. And now the south magnetic pole is the top of the planet and the north magnetic pole is at the bottom of the planet. And so your compass will get worse and worse and worse. And then your compass will be useless. And then your compass will get better and better and better. And then your compass will be backwards. Heans, how is the size of a Lagrange point determined? Is it the mass of the planet, for instance, and is the boundary like a fine line or is it a gradient? Yes, Lagrange point question. It's been so long. Um, I feel like we had answered them all, but it turns out more have come. So a Lagrange point is a misnomer. It is not a point. It is a blob. So, it, but Lagrange blob. Nobody liked that idea. So, um, and this is because nothing in the solar system is perfect. Earth has an elliptical orbit around the sun. The moon follows an elliptical path around the Earth. Mars falls elliptical path, Jupiter falls elliptical path, these planets interact with each other, and they make the locations of the Lagrange points more like blobs. So the, there are the three points that are lined up between say the earth and the sun. And so you can never be on the Lagrange point, it's not like you could balance your spacecraft perfectly in the Lagrange point And then from that point on, just like, you know, like you're stacking rocks, right, and just walk away from it, because the position of this Lagrange point is shifting around depending on the location of the Earth in its orbit, depending on the position of the moon, depending on the distance to Jupiter, all these gravitational factors are causing, you know, it is a moving target. So try stacking a rock on a, uh, a bumper car, right? It's tricky. Um, as it's moving around randomly in random directions. And then the L4 and the L5, think of them like big, wide valleys, big hollows. And so when we send a spacecraft into the L4 or the L5, they're not sitting at a point, they are just orbiting around in an area that is gravitationally stable, that is fully contained within the Lagrange blob. And with the L4 and the L5, they are because they are valleys, as long as you roughly get into that area, and you don't stray outside of the Lagrange area, then you're going to be stable, and you're going to be trapped inside the region of the Lagrange point. So they are, uh, they're like a a mathematical measurement, uh, sort of like the, the perfect number, but it but really, they everything is just fuzzy and depends on the motions of all of the objects in the solar system. Joy thief, what science based discovery do you most hope will be discovered understood in your lifetime? Are we alone in the universe? Like, like this is a scientific question, right? If I fly off to Proxima Centauri, and I land on one of the planets around Proxima Centauri, will I see life? And if not there are they is it at Alpha Centauri or anywhere across the entire Milky Way. This is the question that I think is one of the most fundamental most important questions that we can possibly ask. And it is a scientific question. And I would love to know the answer. And and this is like, why I think it's so funny that people say that like, I'm not ready to handle the truth. I'm ready. Tell me, like, show me the evidence that we are not alone in the universe. Um, I can't wait. It'd be so great to find out conclusively, that we are not alone. And so I just need a lot of evidence to convince me that we, that we are alone or not alone. But yeah, that times a thousand, like every other thing that I'm interested in is eclipsed by that question. Must watch, must read. I recently read a novel where astronauts travel so far. They eventually go through the heliospheric termination shock and some scary things happen. Can we safely pass that threshold? Sure. Yeah. The so the termination shock or the heliosphere is this region around the sun where the solar wind is heading out away from the sun. And you can imagine sort of like the wind from the sun is the dominant particles that are streaming past you. And then you get to a point you now every star has this bubble around it of the solar wind that is puffing out at all times. And if you sort of zoom out, these bubbles from the different stars are going to be interacting with each other. And so you get far enough away from the sun, you're going to pass through the heliosphere. And you know, they call this the termination shock that it is this, this place where you've got this sort of high density where the solar wind is impacting the collective interstellar wind from the rest of the stars in the Milky Way. Um, yeah, it would be fine. Like you, like if you can handle flying out in deep space away from the sun and you can handle the solar wind and you can handle the cosmic rays, then the interstellar winds are fine because like, like just stellar winds themselves are so much less damaging than cosmic rays, like cosmic rays are the worst they're really hard to stop. Like you can put a little bit of material between you and the solar wind, and you'll probably be fine. Like, not during a coronal mass ejection. That's a bad day. But just in general, like you don't want to be in a solar storm. But in general, it's the cosmic rays that are blasting through. What do we talk about 150 times more than the energy of a whisper? right? In an individual iron particle that is busting through your DNA. That is the thing that we need to be worried about. And they don't care about heliospheres, helioshocks. They care very little about atmospheres, but enough that we're safer down here on Earth. Ryan Mortensen, how large would an accretion disc have to be on Sagittarius A for its light to be visible from Earth? So the center of the Milky Way is shrouded in gas and dust. And so we with a regular visible light telescope, can't see the center of the Milky Way. And in fact, for the longest time, astronomers called this sort of blob, the the center of the Milky Way, they call this the zone of avoidance. But really, it was like, it should be like the zone of don't bother, right? Just don't bother pointing your telescope in that direction, because there's just gas and dust, and you're not gonna be able to see anything. And you're just gonna be frustrated. I know you want to see the center of the Milky Way, but it's not going to work. And you can't see what's on the other side, because it's just obscured, so don't bother. Um, but then we got infrared telescopes. And suddenly, these telescopes are able to peer through the gas and dust and astronomers were able to see the stars moving around the black hole at the heart of the Milky Way, they were able to see through this zone of avoidance, the zone of don't bother to the galaxies that are on the other side and be able to figure out what the great attractor is, it's a bunch of galaxies. So imagine if the supermassive black hole, the heart of the Milky Way became a quasar, and started to actively feed on stellar material, maybe it would happen during our collision with Andromeda. And now suddenly, this giant supermassive black hole turns on and is like gobbling up material and blasting out, we still wouldn't be able to see it with our eyes because it is obscured by the gas and dust, by the zone of don't bother. So you could point your telescope at it, and you wouldn't be able to see it. And I could we could stand outside together and look up in the direction where we know is the center of the Milky Way, and we wouldn't see anything. It's only with very powerful uh, infrared telescopes that you could peer through that material and even just like detect the presence of the quasar itself. And it's like, objectively speaking, it wouldn't be that bright. So even if you didn't clear away the gas and dust, you probably still wouldn't be able to see it. It's just like, not that impressive, which sucks. I know, right? Like you want quasar like it's you just imagine it's gonna be this amazing, swirling cloud that we would see with jets that are coming out of it. But we wouldn't see that because we just we have meat cameras in our eyeballs. And uh, it takes giant telescopes the ability to see in other wavelengths, the ability to make long exposures to be able to see that kind of thing. Alright, so those are all the questions that we had this week. Thank everyone for asking them both in the YouTube comments and everybody who showed up live and hammered me with more questions. We do the show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So come and join us. And don't forget to vote. Alright, we'll see you next week. If you want to stay on top of all the important space news, join my weekly email newsletter. I send it out every Friday to more than 60,000 people. I write every word. There are no ads, and it's absolutely free. Subscribe at university.com slash newsletter. You can also subscribe to the Universe Today podcast. There you can find an audio version of all of our news, interviews, and Q&As, as well as exclusive content subscribe at university.com slash podcast or search for universe today on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts a huge thanks to everyone who supports us on patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum thanks to all the interplanetary researchers the interstellar adventurers and the galaxy wanderers, and a special thanks to antonio lofilara dustin cable just paul davis vlad shippelin Jay dennis David Giltenan, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verbioff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.